When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Awake awareness is like opening behind the camera or behind the meditator or relaxing back and down into this already uh, awake, open mind, open heart that feels both spacious and embodied and interconnected. You're listening to Locke Kelly on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you're someone who practices mindfulness and is interested in exploring some different aspects of mindfulness and really deepening your practice, we have an episode that might be of interest to you today. We have Locke Kelly on the podcast here to talk to us about effortless mindfulness. So Locke Kelly is an author and meditation teacher and psychotherapist, and he's founder of the Open Hearted Awareness Institute. And he's developed this concept called effortless mindfulness that he draws from traditional Tibetan teachings on the nature of the mind and he proposes sort of these series of exercises or glimpse where you learn all about awareness and explore the nature of awareness and then ultimately embody that awareness as sort of a a paradigm shift in how to live a more kind, open-hearted life. And these are really high-level teachings that he offers. So most of us know about uh, mindfulness in terms of what he calls deliberate mindfulness, which is pay attention to your breathing or pay attention to a flower or a smell. And he starts with that, but then effortless mindfulness moves on to the next level, which is stepping back into awareness itself. So I think that if, if you are a meditator and you have an interest in this, it will probably be um, really fascinating for you. Welcome, La Kelly. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you, Dad. So I think <laughs> one place to start is the the title of this podcast is Effortless Mindfulness. And hmm. I imagine that a lot of folks might have clicked on that because they're looking for a quick way to get to mindfulness. <laughs> it doesn't require as much effort. This is what humans love is less effort, right? But but what you're talking about in terms of effortless is maybe a little bit different than what listeners yes. are thinking, thinking of. I think it'd be good to start with how, what is effortless mindfulness and how maybe is it different than the type of mindfulness we see uh, promoted out there in, in the West? Yes, yeah, sure. Yes. Uh, 
So, um, yeah, it's not instant enlightenment like instant coffee. <laughs> it is uh, a way to discover uh, through little efforts and little shifts of awareness a capacity that we naturally have that is already effortlessly aware and that we tap into. Most of us, uh, I find, have already experienced it and, in fact, choose to experience it in most of the things we love to do in our daily life. So walking in nature, gardening, playing sports, um, playing music. Um, in order to do those activities, you come out of this um, mental, small sense of self that is self-referencing and looking to thought to remember what to do. And you kind of drop down into your body and into this kind of open mind, open heart. And then you feel connected. Let's say you're walking in nature. You, you just feel relaxed and uh, interconnected with everything. And you just are walking without thinking about walking. So, so there's this capacity that is considered the advanced form of mindfulness called effortless mindfulness. This is a practice, actually, that people would spend many, many years studying mm. to, to learn. And you've spent a lot of time uh, exploring different Buddhist philosophies and, and, mm -hmm. and on your own. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to learn about effortless mindfulness? What's your connection to meditation? Sure. Um, I mean, interestingly, I would say uh, my first experience was in sports uh, is that I, I heard somebody, a sportscaster say in a, a talking about a quarterback on a football team, he's got eyes in the back of his head. And I thought, eyes in the back of his head, what does that mean? And I thought, oh, can I see what's behind me? No, that's not it. So I literally just opened my awareness around to kind of open my peripheral vision. And then I just kept kind of feeling that awareness didn't stop with my eyes or my brain, that it opened up into this 360 degree panoramic awareness. And then I just dropped into my body. Uh, what I know now is that's what's called being in the zone or being in flow. And that's what athletes, musicians, and people who are optimally functioning and yet feel joy and bliss um, are, are able to access in their uh, particular profession or through their activity. And uh, so I was kind of explaining this to a friend of mine uh, and one of the seniors on the teams came to me the next week and said, here, kid, read this. And he gave me this book, uh, Zen and the Art of Archery. Mm. So at 14, I thought, wow, this is like incredible that people value this. It's the happiest I feel in my life. It's when I'm connected to everyone. I feel um joyous and embodied. And so, you know, I followed that thread. It led me to graduate school in psychology and spirituality in New York. And then I went on a fellowship to Sri Lanka and did the deliberate mindfulness, uh, Vipassana or insight meditation. I did five-day retreats, 10-day retreats, 21-day retreats, and enjoyed that experience. And then I went up north and ended up um, at a Tibetan teacher who 
uh, gave a 15 minute talk and then showed how to shift my awareness in three minutes. I felt the same way as I did at the end of a 10 day retreat. Mm -hmm. So the premise was this, which you're seeking, which you effortfully can do that takes 10 days can be accessed in a snap of a finger because it's already installed. And so um, this direct kind of way of teaching it uh, is one of the paths so you don't have to do all the preliminary practices. When you speak of deliberate mindfulness, you're referring to the type of mindfulness that a lot of us in the West are starting to learn, which is that focused awareness of paying attention to our breath or paying Mm -hmm. attention to sound or paying attention to sort of this this local type of awareness. But you describe in your book something called awake awareness. Can you talk about the difference there? Yes. So we could say there's uh, different kinds of awareness. So the first one that most people know is attention. So kind of a one-pointed focus, you know, bring your attention to your breath. Um, and what you do is you use your small moving mind to try to focus on an object, in this case, your breath, and your mind keeps moving and you keep bringing it back to the object of attention. And then you develop a kind of a calm uh, state. But what research has showed is that you're actually uh, repressing your internal uh, ability to observe what's going on inside. You're just putting on what's called the task mode network by making attention uh, one-pointed, and it calms you, but you can't transition then to live from there. Mm. So that's the first kind of attention that most people use as a calming. And the second is kind of this witness position of mindfulness where you uh, feel like you're observing your thoughts, feelings, and sensations as objects that are coming and going. And this helps us to kind of observe that a lot of therapists use this, you know, can you be aware of that feeling that you're upset or angry? Where are you aware of it from, you know, in your body? And then you can kind of step up and use a mindful awareness to be aware of that. And then awake awareness is like opening behind the camera or behind the meditator or relaxing back and down into this already uh, awake, open mind, open heart that feels both spacious and embodied and interconnected. And you, it takes just the same amount of time to learn this as it does to learn deliberate mindfulness. Uh, so it takes a little practice and it's very new to kind of uh, open from what was the observer becomes the observed, that point of view or that location of self. And then you're feeling like you're a bigger self or a more loving self or a more spacious, uh, almost heart-centered view that feels uh, interconnected rather than looking from a detached witness. From an act perspective, uh, there may be uh, 
sort of some terms that map on to what you're talking uh-huh. about that might help our listeners. So the okay. term of um, unhooking from our thoughts, we in ACT, we call that cognitive diffusion, which is uh-huh. the ability to sort of step back and look at our thoughts, which might be more of that deliberate awareness, yes. looking at this, you know, from moving out of small mind. And then the next concept that you're talking about, where you're kind of being from the, the place of awareness mm-hmm. in act we call uh, self as context as yep. opposed to self as content. That's and good. you even yeah. refer that refer to that in your book of being sort of identifying with ourself as a content. I am a mother or I am yeah. a, you know, podcaster right now and right. being able to step out of that into, to more of a contextual moving view. Can mm-hmm. you speak to that? A bit? Sure. Yeah, and that's that's beautiful. That is one of the pointers that I use uh, because uh, deliberate mindfulness, what most people know as mindfulness, um, <clears throat> the four foundations of mindfulness are being aware of thoughts, feelings, sensations, and mind objects, and noticing them coming and going. So that is really learning how to focus on the content. So not only the big content like oh, this is my name and this is, you know, where I live and this is, but now the content of the subtler level of feelings, emotions, thoughts, and shifting to the context is, uh, is not just shifting to a witness position, but literally to the space between the movement and then realizing that you're aware of the space and then you're actually aware from the space. So the space is actually the foundation of intelligence from which thoughts, feelings, and sensations start to arise like an ocean of awareness arising as waves. And this kind of um, feeling of being or open-heartedness that's a little more interested in the context and, in fact, almost like surrendering or looking to the context of awake awareness until you realize it's already aware by itself and you're aware from it without having to focus, without having to concentrate. It's just the natural uh, flow of, uh, of, of, and there's kind of a safety and a, and a embrace, like you're being embraced and you're embracing, you know, everything that seems so big before. So emotions are really big if you're looking from your small ego center or from your attention or even from kind of a mindful witness, you feel like you're a little detached. But here you're feeling almost like embracing and you're always bigger than whatever trauma, even trauma-based emotions and shame and fear and terror um, can't get bigger than this embracing sense of self. And as you describe how how a storm can never harm the sky. Yes, that, that's that right. Description. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's this uh, a metaphor that uh, I learned from psychologist Kelly Wilson when he talks mm-hmm. about how to sit with a client. And mm. he's talked about sitting with a client rather than looking at a client as a, as a math problem to be solved, mm-hmm. looking at them as a sunset. Mm. But when I was reading your work, I, I realized that, that there's an add-on experience to that of seeing someone as a, as a sunset when you wake up to the fact that you're also part of that sunset. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the big shift is this 
is is not being merged. It's like not like you're merged. So there's, you know, there's a sense if you're in your subtle body energy that you can be too merged with someone else and you're taking on their energy. Yeah. So this isn't that. It's actually, um, it, that would be like two clouds kind of merging in their stormy uh, sky. And this is like stepping out into the sky and realizing this infinite, capacity that's awake and that that awareness is within the cloud of who you are and that awareness is within the other person so you're connected on this level of essential uh, sense of being and if the other person's really upset and they're going rah it's not gonna uh, you don't have to take it on in your body you feel like they um, you can have more compassion than what's called empathetic distress, which happens in some of the studies. If you have empathy from just an energetic level, you can go into empathetic distress or burnout. And from this more effortless mindfulness-based therapy, you feel connected on the subtlest level, but it's almost like gossamer curtains, that when someone has a strong emotion, you feel it, but it goes right through you um, and it doesn't isn't like a hot potato. You mentioned that you can obtain this experience in three minutes. Yes. Sort of what people have been, you know, meditating on retreat for you know months at a time. Yeah. And what what many of us have noticed is how mindfulness in the West has really become divorced from mm-hmm. some of the Buddhist philosophy mm-hmm. that it it originated from. And you can see how it's showing up in terms of it's like being gamified in apps mm-hmm. and you get gold stars for how many days you've practiced your mindfulness or it's yeah. showing up in training programs for stress with mm-hmm. you know, Target Corporation. Is there any danger in sort of moving straight to the, the, the practice or trying to really mm. distill it down in this way and, and removing some of the, the essence of the Buddhist philosophy behind it? I mean, in some ways, it is the essence of the Buddhist philosophy. Um, <clears throat> the first story told about Buddha is that he had been effortfully doing all these practices, meditation, renunciation, um, <clears throat> physical, um, mental, long periods of sitting. He had been teaching all these things. And then he finally realized all that effort, even though he was doing it, you know, so well doing all the jhana practices and the inside practices was getting him nowhere. And so he sat for a moment and what he reflected on was a time when he was a child on a summer day after lunch, just sitting on a tree in an open field and just looking out at the sky. And he realized, oh, well, that's what I'm looking for could it be that simple that it's just already here and I don't have to make so much effort? So in some ways, this is going back to the root of what the first initial discovery of um, Buddhism was, is that it's naturally here. It was available as a child. Um, The teacher that I uh, learned this from was giving it out freely and felt like it's actually what is most needed for Westerners. It's likely to be the style that's most helpful if it's fully 
taught. <clears throat> so it's not just transcending, it's actually transcending and embodying and interconnecting. So it has a kind of movement to it, a flow. Um, and he said that he had done three three-year retreats in a classic style of a long training. But he said at uh, 13, his uncle had pointed his true nature out to him. And it was no different than it was after three three-year retreats. So again, <clears throat> it's this, it literally is the source of freedom from self that's already available. And it's where kind of motivation and ethics spring from. Yes. And as you said, what many people may have noticed, they've already experienced before. I know um, from my experience of, you know, being with someone when they're dying or mm -hmm. holding a newborn baby, there's these, these moments where time, time seems timeless and you feel so part of yes. each, um, each move, each subtle movement of their face yeah. or, or yeah. their body. And I think everyone probably has experienced that in some way or another, but you're putting not only words to it, but also some practices to yes. how to get there. And you use something called glimpses. That's right. Can you speak about those? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So this, um, the sense of a glimpse isn't that it's a short meditation experience that you're having. It's literally a shift from the current operating system, which is a small separate sense of self that's kind of a habit of thought going to thought, going to emotion, going to sensation that creates a feeling of a little me that most people feel is in the middle of their head behind their eyes and looking out and analyzing and judging and kind of driving this vehicle of a body around. And that glimpse is letting awareness just relax or open to discover the more essential new operating system of awareness-based knowing that's embodied and open-hearted uh, and is more essentially who we are. So it's a shift of identity. It's a shift of mind. It's a shift of perception into uh, our awake consciousness. And that glimpse that, you know, Buddha had under the tree was that, and that people can learn to intentionally do it, that it's learnable, it's teachable, and that it's, um, it's simple once you kind of learn the basics. So initially it's, you know, it's odd <laughs> and weird, but because it's, you know, how do you do that? Unhook your awareness from thought and have it go to seeing, have it go to hearing, have it go to the space in the room, have it go to the awareness that's already aware. Uh, what are you talking about? But <clears throat> once you play with it and get a little feel for it, it's like riding a bicycle. You don't know how to ride a bicycle and it seems scary. And once you realize, okay, well, you have to be moving to get on. You can't just get on. Oh, no, if I'm moving, I'm going to fall, you know. So once you get a feel for what balance is, uh, it's not a mental knowing. It's not an intellectual understanding. The glimpse gives you um, a felt sense of being and then a felt sense of seeing from being. And once 
just like riding a bicycle once you've experienced a glimpse, mm-hmm. you can't unknow it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Now you yeah. know it, and now you know how it feels, <laughs> and, it's, right. and it's very, uh, you know, embodied, and yeah. it's hard to describe, describe with these, you know, sort of, we do all this conceptual talking about things, but a, a lot of it is feeling. That's right. Uh, one of the glimpses that, that you use in the book is with emotions, and mm-hmm. I really liked it because it, the first few steps of it will sound really familiar to those of us that have been yeah. doing some of this um, mindfulness work, which is or even cognitive diffusion with you start with the feeling I, mm-hmm. I am sad. Right. <laughs> and then you take mm-hmm. a little look at that and then you move to, I feel sad. Right. And then you move to, I am aware of feeling sadness. Yeah. And then sadness is welcome. So all of those mm-hmm. are probably ones that, you know, as a therapist, I've worked with clients in, but, but the last one, which kind of threw me mm-hmm. a little bit <laughs> is when you say, when you say awareness and sadness are not separate. Yeah. Help me out. Yeah. So, so this is, this is the content and context are not two. So you can focus on the content um, and be too enmeshed. First of all, I am sad. So when you say I am sad and feel it for even a moment, you merge and you identify and your whole being and your identity is sadness. It's bigger than you. There's nothing else. Then I feel sad. Okay. So now there's that little move of mindfulness. Oh, I feel sad. So there's I and there's a feeling of something else. So it's kind of subject object. And then I'm aware of feeling sadness. Now you've stepped back to a little bigger witness position. Oh, I'm aware of feeling sadness. Now you have a little more context that's separate from content. And then sadness is welcome starts to mingle the two. So you're not caught in what I call the witness protection program of being in the context, looking at the context, content. Then you feel, oh, sadness is welcome. And then you feel that sadness and awareness are not two things, that you don't have to go outside, that the sadness is arising as you're being within this bigger field or ocean that is not sad but can feel the the weather in the sky is you know there's a cloudy sky but behind the sky is the sun and you know the the weather will pass and it won't hurt anything there's this bigger view of you mm-hmm. so so that feeling that the essential dimension of knowing isn't thought it's awake space it's awareness so a child, a baby, is aware and has no thought, no, has no uh, language, has no concepts, and yet they're fully alive. In fact, when you look at, a, as you were saying, a little baby, you literally feel the awareness mingled with sadness or happiness or whatever state. That feeling is, is beingness, which is that pointer at the end. Awareness and sadness are not two. Nothing's bigger than you, but you don't need to reject or defend against emotion. A little example of how this applies would be, um, so, you know, having worked inpatient psych and outpatient psych and, you know, with every diagnosis available, um, uh, including, you know, a lot of 
super successful people, you know, but in an inpatient situation where somebody uh, had anorexia and she was cutting herself as well. And that was her kind of way of uh, being bound by her symptoms of anorexia. And so asking her, uh, are you aware of a part of yourself that wants to hurt yourself? And she said, you mean part of myself? Yeah, part of you. Oh, and that gives a little distance. Yeah, there is a part of me. Where is that part? And she kind of said, well, it's kind of right here in my throat, kind of holding me by my throat. Okay, so you're aware of that part? That one? Yeah, there's that part. And it's located in a certain area? Yeah. Now are you aware of a part that wants to get better, that wants to be free, that wants love, that wants... And she goes, oh, I don't know if I am or not. Let me... Well, why don't you take a look? Okay. Oh, oh yeah, kind of like in the middle of my chest, like in my heart or my belly, like right there. And it has a shape and area? Yeah. Okay. Now, who's aware of those two parts? And she just opened and these wide eyes and this big smile. And she said, well, I am. And I said, well, where are you aware from? And she said, from love. I mean, from everywhere, from everywhere and here. And I said, yeah, and that's you, right? Yeah. And these are parts of you. Yeah. Yeah. And then how do you feel toward those parts from this sense of who you are? And she said, wow, I feel compassion toward both of them. So that's kind of a little glimpse of this um, process that traditionally, you know, this um, direct practice, you know, has had these caveats. Oh, well, you need to do all these preliminary practices and it's only for the elite meditator, Olympic athletes of meditation. And you shouldn't, you know, and the truth is it's not only available to everyone, it's available to those who would be considered never available to, which are people with complex trauma. Mm -hmm. And not only is it available to them, they need it the most. Yeah. So this is why I'm kind of bringing this out to the world and having, you know, with the ethics and the, um, you know, having studied and checked out the whole system, it just seems like it's time. Yeah. It also is beneficial for something like physical pain. Yeah, absolutely. As well. Yeah. Uh, chronic pain, things that <laughs> feel like they're never going to go away that we get so um, entangled in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I have a little yeah protocol in this book um, that has helped people with chronic pain. That's a very different kind of mindfulness um, toward the pain. Um, yes, you take the the non-dual body scan is what you describe it. So <laughs> that's right. those that, that know about mindfulness <clears throat> and chronic pain, we think about Kabat-Zinn's body scan. Everyone's that's right. Listen to that audio, you know, a lot of times. But yeah. but you do the non-dual body scan. What's that that's subtle right. subtle difference there? Yeah. So the subtle difference is when you do a body scan. If you were to say, okay, begin <clears throat> to become aware of your foot, uh, and you know, let your awareness let yourself bring your attention to your foot and let yourself scan your foot or both your feet you're doing it from your head yeah. so what i say is okay 
notice where are you focusing on your foot from. Now unhook awareness from thought and that location. Be aware of that location that was the observer is now observed. And now let the awareness feel your head from within. Now let the awareness drop and be aware of your jaw from within your jaw and aware of your throat from within your throat. And so as you're dropping, you're actually aware from within your body, of your body. So um, that kind of approach of going right to the area of the pain and directly looking inside it and then not having the signal go up to the head, but literally go to the field of awareness, uh, just brings it from like an eight on a pain scale to a two immediately. Mm-hmm. So how does this map on to neuroscience? You, you studied quite a bit of neuroscience and even have been one of the participants. People study your yeah, brain <laughs> that's right. uh, in these studies. And it, it's, it's, it, there's this interesting mapping on what you're mm-hmm. describing and effortless mindfulness. So this not deliberate mindfulness, but effortless mindfulness being distinct. Yeah. There's a mapping on to what's happening in the brain. Yes. So I mentioned a little bit about this um, this, you know, kind of what's called the default network of the brain, which <clears throat> is this uh, just recently discovered <clears throat> reason that we uh, become distracted is that our brain has these two systems. One looks outward, what's going on out here, and then it, the other system comes on, the internal one, and says, what's going on inside? And then it just keeps alternating. So <clears throat> when you try to focus on your breath, uh, the reason that you become distracted is because you, your, the other system will come on. <clears throat> and when we do one-pointed meditation, we repress one system and, uh, and just focus on one. And in non-dual meditation, we balance both. We actually are aware of inside and outside simultaneously so that you start to feel this unity or oneness this kind of seamless uh, feeling of being aware of what's going on inside of you, what's going on outside of you, without this alternating um, <clears throat> distraction or hypervigilance. And so it feels really safe and connected and soft and kind of people say it's like the ground of being. Uh, there's this openness like a Tai Chi master. Um, feels. That's what someone said who was, he goes, oh, you just led me into what I feel after, you know, like 20 years of Tai Chi. This is how I feel. I feel safe. I could respond. I'm, I'm loving. I'm not worried, but I'm aware of everything going on and how I feel about it. So one thing that I've experienced is when I'm in that that space. And oftentimes the way that I get to that space is going on a retreat and coming Mm -hmm. back from retreat. Sometimes I wonder about, I come back so open hearted yeah, and, uh, and then I come back into a world that maybe isn't in the same space Mm -hmm. that I'm in. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder if I'm sort of like a drunk person at a party who thinks they're really funny, but everyone else doesn't think they're so (laughs) funny. Right. Because I'm so open hearted and so right. open and yeah. vulnerable and compassionate. And 
you know, I come back to like my partner that's pulling out his hair from dealing with the kids <laughs> for, you know, a week while I was right. meditating and doing yoga. So how do we, because I could also see the potential for stepping into that space and it being somewhat self-serving in some way or, or not, or not, or not connecting with people, even though you feel connected. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's the critique of doing kind of closed eyes, deliberate mindfulness retreats. And that's the experience I hear. Whereas, you know, the retreats of effortless mindfulness by we're open eyed most of the time, uh, we're doing partner exercises, we're bringing content of by the end, we're kind of doing this open hearted Tonglin practice, where we're kind of feeling open hearted toward each other, then we're sharing things with each other in a way that we're and then by the end, we're, okay, talk about what you're about to go home to, what's the situation, bring that in to the space so that there's a transition from cushion to off the cushion, um, to mingle uh, to be awake in the world. I mean, I live in New York City, so I I think it's great fun. I mean, I, I'm having a blast, and all sorts of stuff's happening, uh, but it's a continuous uh, response, and people respond when you're open-hearted and grounded, and you're, you're not kind of a little la-la land or a little, um, you know, in a kind of, uh, retreat space, you're in an engaged uh, open heart that feels like you can be um, responsive and acknowledge something, but just, you know, not deny it. I was working with a, a Buddhist psychologist, Radhele Weininger, okay. and there was debris flow in Santa Barbara, mm. and we were responding with a community gathering and uh, workshop. And and when I was planning out this workshop, I had this grand idea of post-traumatic growth. And I'd done all this mm-hmm. research on post-traumatic growth and presented it to her. Like, I want to talk about this. And, mm-hmm. and she paused and said, whoa, hold on here. Uh, I don't want to do a spiritual bypass. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I'd actually ever heard that oh, word. Okay. And it took me back a little bit, a little put me in my place. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about what is a spiritual bypass? Sure. And how do we how do we not step in step into that? Yeah. So I'll I'll do that by also adding my other two categories that I added, which is a cognitive overpass yes. and a psychological underpass. Thank you. So the spiritual bypass is um, uh, <clears throat> something that uh, has was coined, um, and it basically means you know, maybe a little bit of what you were talking about when you kind of go away and go into a transcendent kind of consciousness that's a little detached from the world and you start to be less embodied and more focused on the transcendent and about pure awareness and about um, all as well from a kind of loving kindness and you're kind of creating a world or a state or attitudes that are a little bit um, almost denying uh, the relative world. I think, yeah, I think, she, I think what she was referring to there also is I was going straight to let's talk about the growth, the possibility of growth uh-huh, from this right. tragedy as opposed that's to right. be able to sit in the tragedy a little bit longer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, that, so that you're, you know, you're mingling, you're both transcendent and imminent. You feel the infinite and the finite, uh, the ultimate 
possibility of growth, but then you're with the grieving process mm -hmm. while that's happening. So that, but then there's the cognitive overpass, which is, you know, somewhat similar, but it's just basically using our intelligence to kind of figure things out or dance, you know, dance above everything or just rationalize everything away. Oh, it's going to be fine. And we'll work it out and just try to do the best you can. And we'll figure it out and read some spiritual books and, you know, understand psychologically and understand um, what we need to do and how to do it and just plan. And, you know, so that kind of keeps us in our head in this very smart neurotic place that we feel like we're doing the best we can because we don't know another option. And then the psychological underpass is people uh, who do just psychological work and are continually just trying to work with their childhood uh, situation, but they don't have a resource of a spiritual resource or meditative resource or resource of something bigger than their psychological ego. So they're healing and cleaning and just moving pieces around on the chessboard or cleaning up the cloud and then the cloud will still get messy and they'll still remain in the cloud, but they don't know the sky is also who they are. Um, and, you know, they, they psychologically, you know, 90% of psychological models don't include spirituality or meditative consciousness. Right. This is sort of perpetually seeking for, you yeah. know, for something to, to be the solution out there and That's not right. realizing it's just, wow, it's just right here. It's already yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love the traps and detours mm. part of your book. You talk about some of those intellectualization. Uh, one that I really liked, you said, is loving the description but not taking the prescription. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I think we can all get. We can all get in that mode of, of reading a lot of books and and and, yeah. and getting mm -hmm. behind it, but then never actually really doing the practice or, or applying it. Yeah, and you know, as you were saying before, the you know when you get that glimpse there is this taste of, of freedom, this taste of love, this taste of a new operating system that you feel, wow, the three minutes, I'm in it, and now I'm here, and from here, everything's so beautiful, and this is where I want to live from. But when you go back to the habitual uh, operating system from the small separate self, there's defensive parts and protective parts that start saying like, Oh, well, that, yeah, that was fine for then, but I don't know if you can live that way. And, you know, I think you were a little spaced out. So I don't know, we'll do that again, but, you know, got other things to do. And, and so from that operating system, people will often get busy or get uh, distracted because that current operating system has not only an ego center, it has ego defenses that are basically saying, Look, I got you this far, and you ain't dead yet. So don't mess around with, with you know, just holding it together and suffering, you know, a little less. But you know, this whole, you know, upgrade feels like I'm going to be left behind. So there's some kind of talking to these parts as part of the system um, that you start to say, okay, you're afraid, you know, to go into this awakened consciousness and this open heartedness because you feel like you'll be alone or you'll be uh, in danger, or it'll be, you know, to, you'll be a couch potato or something. But let me show you that we're just going to the kitchen to resource with the source. And now I'm coming back from this loving presence. And now we're going to include you as important parts of the team um, that can help, but you don't have to be the driver anymore. 
so the ego center, that kind of manager parts, just you know start to relax, and then they're available when needed. But peace of mind is the norm. So people who have done this practices for a while, uh, you know, just describe radical changes, and you know, one of them is just this sense of safety and well-being and okayness and kind of joy. So emotional joy that you're just like with friends all the time as if you're safe and you can respond uh, easily. So it's, you know, quite remarkable. Yeah. When you talk about that process of awareness in the West, we, we group everything together. Awareness we make that the same as attention and consciousness. It's all sort of one. We think of that as all being one thing. Uh, So we'll say things like I'm aware of my breath or I bring attention to my breath, but you make a distinction between, between those that they're not the same. Yeah. So there are types of awareness. So um, even in, you know, in, in Buddhism uh, thinking is the sixth sense and everything appears to awareness. So uh, awareness Awake awareness is the source of mind, and then attention is the small focusing uh, type of awareness. Uh, Mindful awareness is kind of the big observing awareness from the context. And then awake awareness is actually like the quantum field that's made of nothing. It's invisible, but it's dynamic. And from it arise particles and waves made of this awake consciousness that then form into patterns of people and thought and feeling. But essentially, the ability to feel awareness, to be aware of thought, then to be aware of the space between the thoughts, then to be aware of the awareness that's aware of the thought and the space. And then to realize from that awareness, you can be aware of space or thought, and that thought and space are all kind of dancing in this kind of unity of, and it's actually what emptiness means. So interestingly, emptiness, which is the main word in Buddhism, means empty of a separate sense of self. Yeah. So there's no thing that exists by itself, a flower is not a flower without sun and water and earth. So everything is interdependent, which means everything is interconnected, which means that there's this, when you feel that, you feel, you don't feel void and you feel emptiness, you feel interconnected mm-hmm. with everything. You feel the awareness is the subject and it's arising within everyone and everything. Yeah. And we could see if we're living from that space more, how our actions would probably be different with each other, with our planet. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It really is a radical, it's a radical thing. And I, you know, I, you know, I mean, obviously I, I respect everyone's tradition and opinion and, you know, um, have practiced many and get benefit from many different traditions, but um, it just feels like there's just this one move from relative practices to the possibility of something that hasn't been on the map before mm-hmm. in psychology and philosophy and meditation. And, um, and it's here now. It's just coming 
into possibility. And those who have kind of discovered it are like, oh, my God, how could you? I mean, I don't know how many times. I, how come nobody told me about this before? You know, it's like, what? This is the secret sauce, you know? Like, so, you know, that's, I'm just trying to distinguish and discriminate and just just get people to just get that little glimpse of this other, uh, you know, possibility. Yeah. And I, I saw that you're doing a workshop coming up through Tricycle. Yes. And if, if folks are interested in, in learning directly from you or through sure. you, what, how could they go about that? Yeah. So I'm doing one there and I'm doing one at Kripalu Yoga Center. And then I'm doing one in Costa Rica. And I'm doing Ooh. one in, in Esalen. Nice. So there's, you know, these wonderful retreats coming up. Uh, uh, so, yeah, my website is uh, lockkelly.org, L-O-C-H-K-E-L-L-Y.org. Um, and, you know, there's some YouTube videos and other things on, on there uh, that you can get experiences of. You can, you know, find my book there and then find other ways to, to come and meet some other people. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share some of your wisdom and experience with us and The Way of Effortless Mindfulness, A Revolutionary Guide for Living an Awakened Life is available and we'll, we'll link to that as well as some of your trainings and, and website on our show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Diana. Really a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, take care. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.